What's going on, everybody? Hotep to the family. Ashe to all my people out there. Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network, where we give our point of view of controversial topics from experience, history, knowledge as African-Americans. I'm here with my co-host to the right of me, Shaquan Battle. Hey. <laughs> Jerome Battle to the right of him. So we're back after missing last week. I got a few text messages like, yo, where is the pod at? Um, so people been looking for us, but we had to take the, the week off for Mother's Day. Hope all the mothers out there had a wonderful Mother's Day. Thank you for all that you do for you are the first teacher of the child. And you are important, as you've seen on our previous episodes, how much we uplift our women. Um, so we're going to move forward today and... Pops, you had a topic that you wanted to talk about, which was talking about the local community building, local people. Um, we've talked about a lot of uh, famous people. We've talked about a lot of people that that uh, done national and international work. But today we're going to focus more on those local heroes that that kind of don't get that recognition that they deserve for who build up their community. Um, and we're going to look at a lot of history today as well, of course. Uh, so, Dad, why did you want to talk about this topic in particular? I think it's important. We, we always talk about uh, how some of the things we talk about on this podcast applies to the viewer today. And I think it gives them that sense of understanding of history, but it puts them in a place that they probably never thought they were um, in terms of value, value to the community, um, value to the existence of people around them and in value to the black community, which mm -hmm. I think is really important. Um, but I also think that as my generation, we probably did a poor job at keeping the names alive of those people that were at the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, prime example, Susie Gibson. Mm -hmm. um, I think up until maybe five, six, seven years ago, there's a lot of people 20, 30 years old didn't even know who Susie Gibson was, mm -hmm. which I think is sad because I think that Susie Gibson played a great role in education in Bedford County mm -hmm. from 1954 until 1970 mm -hmm. when schools were integrated in this area. So I think it's important that we bring some of those people to the forefront and they're local, right. people who did it right here in this area, not just Bedford County, but in this area, speaking of Lucy Addison and Roanoke. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's huge because once again, we're talking about two things that we've always talked on, talked about on this podcast, women in the forefront, mm -hmm. education, yeah. being that equalizer. Absolutely. Uh, Shaquan, why do you think it's important that we talk about this? Uh, <clears throat> just from the research that, you know, that I've got from y'all, you know, I never knew anything about, um, integration like Susie B. Gibson. I didn't I don't even know who that is. Mm -hmm, right. But we have a school that's named after her now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important to know our own history in the town that we live in because I don't know too much about it. Absolutely. Um it's important that we begin to talk about this because again, a lot of people don't do things for recognition. When we look at today's world, of course social media you can get the recognition. Of course you can just call the newspaper or call WSCT and get recognition for something that you're doing. And they might not even know who you are. You just, right. They just see you doing something and they want to interview you because they want it makes a good story. But there are a lot of people in history who don't have that, that broadcast. They didn't have that platform. But behind closed doors, um, they did some phenomenal things and they created 
a lot of who we are today. When you look at, especially in the African-American community, there are some names that we're going to go down of people who implemented things, um, even just through conversation. It don't have to be, you know, meeting with us five days a week or giving us money. It's simple conversations that they gave us that instilled in us for the rest of our lives. That's right. Um, whether it's coaches, whether it's teachers, whether it's somebody else's parents, whatever that they did, they made an impact. And I believe a lot of them don't even know that they did. They were just doing the right thing. Exactly. Um, so that, that's what we're going to get into today. Um, so I'll start with uh, a brief history as we lead up to Susie B. Gibson. Uh, Bedford County was formed in 1754. Uh, it was once a part of Lunenburg County, and they um, they be they began to separate. And what they did was they created a 100-acre land right here, what we call the city today. And Bedford, at the time, was called Liberty. So mm -hmm. that town area was just called Liberty um, until 1890, where it officially became Bedford, uh, Bedford City or Bedford um, or the town of Bedford. Um, of course, when we talk about the African American community. Uh, slavery was big in 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 Bedford. Um, a guy by the name of uh, Jonathan Buford owned a lot of slaves. He probably was the the biggest slave owner in Bedford. Um, there was actually churches that petitioned for slaves um, in in Bedford County. Of course, if you live in the JF area, you know Thomas Jefferson visited a lot in Bedford County. Vacation home in Bedford County. Um, Bedford was spared during the Civil War, uh, but they did turn two schools into a hospital during the Civil War era. But right after the Civil War, we talked about something on this podcast, which was the Freedman's Bureau, which gave money to the South to begin to build schools, um, especially for blacks. And one of the things that first happened was in 1866, uh, Washington Street Baptist Church. Um, right. began with two ministers by the name of J.A. Davis and Samson White, started the congregation by preaching in homes. Um, if you see Washington Street Baptist Church, it's still a monumental Baptist church here in the Bedford community. Um, 1886, St. Philip's uh, Episcopal Church was formed for Bedford Blacks um, Episcopalians. The Episcopalians abolished segregated facilities in 1968. And St. Philip's congregation merged with white congregations um, that actually made a lot of people mad when that happened. But the first operated school in Bearford County for blacks was opened by the Pennsylvania Free Man's Relief Association in 1866. Again, it was the town of Liberty at that time where Alvin Varner and I.W. Shoemaker purchased the deed property and was uh, Varner was selected as the teacher for the Free Man's Association. Uh, the next school to open up for blacks was in 1875 in the Auto District. Um, the addition of um, the Promised Land School, 1876, out by Manita. Um, in the same district, James Compton, a white Methodist preacher, taught in the school for blacks. Apparently, many whites deserted his church because he began to teach blacks. Um, about a year later, Oak Grove School near Huddleston and Otter Branch School, seven miles west of Manita, opened up for black children. Um, Public education for blacks in Bedford County began in 1883 when the municipal school board purchased property known as the Piedmont and built an elementary school there. This school lasted until 1912 when the property was sold and the school board built another elementary school at the corner of West Franklin and South Bridge Street. 
1923, a group known as the Citizens Club was organized to pursue a high school for black children. Um, of course, that didn't open up until 1930 because Barefoot Training School, it offered school, but it didn't offer uh, 12th grade. That's right. So a lot of times you would finish in the 11th grade. So African-American students began to push for a, a high school for 12 years because they didn't feel like they were ready to go out to the world and, and, and capitalize on all opportunities without having that 12th grade. So Susie B. Gibson became the first school, the black school um, here in Bedford that offered 12th grade as well. Um, so we see Susie B. Gibson, as we spoke about earlier, uh, traveled to Bedford County to teach and mentor the division black students when she was the Bedford County's supervisor of African-American education. Um, despite a four decade teaching career that started in 1909, she didn't receive her bachelor's degree in elementary education until 1943. So she was going back and forth between school and teaching for 20 some years before she That's ever right. finished her degree. So that just shows how determined she was and how passionate she was about teaching young black children and the sacrifice. Right. So she not only was working on her degree for 20 years, she was also teaching at the time, which goes to show that you don't need uh, certification to That's do right. good things. You don't need a title to do good things. You just need the heart and the passion to do so. And the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, John Jones. Uh, Mr. Jones began teaching in 1939 at Whitten Road Elementary School. The same year, he was transferred to Greenspring Elementary School on Whitten Road, which was located in the forest area. Um, in 1949, he became an assistant principal at the Bedford Training School. And in 1951, he was promoted to principal of the Bedford of the Bedford Training School until it closed and where he became the principal at Susie B. Gibson High School. And uh, he was also a secondary supervisor um, in Bedford County when the school system integrated in 1970. So we see already some influential people um, already in building the school system. Uh, so with Susie B. Gibson. You know, there were students who had to travel for an hour just to get there um, because that was the only black, which we consider high school that was available in, in, in the county. But the other schools that existed during the time was Bridge Street, Counter Ridge, Creasy, uh, Good, Greenspring, Hutter, Johnson Mountain, Montville, um, Munford, Old, Oak Mountain, Olive Branch, Otter River, Piney Grove, Promised Land, Reed, Sharon and Western Light. Um, I read an interview from Gerald Larry, who I'll talk about later. He talked about playing football and basketball and baseball for Susie B. Gibson. They were called the Gibson Braves. Um, and he talked about, you know, them winning a a big baseball game and the coach taking them down to um, to what is it? Uh, Buddy's Burgers. Buddy's Burgers, Buddy's Burgers yeah. took them down to, to celebrate <clears throat> because they had beat a, a very good school. Um Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School was actually the school that they they beat to where they they celebrated uh, in the basketball game. Dunbar um, Lynchburg. Dunbar in Lynchburg. Yes, yeah. in Lynchburg. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, that just shows you the prominence that we see. Um, they also had a football team, and he actually said that they actually scrimmaged uh, Liberty High School a That's couple right. of times. Um, and so they they played a lot of different uh, different teams. But just looking at just looking at the history as I went through it and began to see, you know, some of my ancestors names, um, 
when I was looking through some of the articles and it, it just amazed me looking through the the graduation classes, seeing familiar names, familiar last names. It just shows you the history that we have that a lot of people don't know because I've had a few of these people on my Facebook and I have no idea that they were pioneers. And I actually commented on uh, Harriet Hurt. I'll say her name. Harriet Hurt um, is one of the was one of the forerunners to bring in the Susie B. Gibson name back. And she attended Susie B. Gibson and um, she had posted up. I guess they did a new sign for, That's right. for the school. And, you know, I commented and talked about and thanked her for being a pioneer and 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 paving the way for us. And she, you know, she thanked me and she's glad to see the younger generation pay attention to our own history because it's, it's been, you know, thrown under the rug, um, That's right. and which it shouldn't be because these people are still living and they, they deserve their their praise for what they what they went through and what they what they done to keep the history alive. That's right. My mom and my aunt Georgia both graduated from Susie B. Gibson. Mm -hmm. And in some of the research you guys did, you guys sent me a, a newspaper clipping that had my aunt Georgia, Georgia Sparrow, mm -hmm. who had just made the cheerleading, the cheerleading team. Yes. And, you know, to, to be able to read that, mm -hmm. um, I, I can't tell you how it made me feel just to be able to read it. Right. Uh, so I encourage people to do your research and you'll be surprised at how some of the findings will make you feel and can make you a better person today. Right. So making it personal, uh, it, it was big for me to see her name there because the criteria to make it a cheerleading team, you had to have good upstanding, good grades. That's right. Um, <clears throat> being a, a leader. So just seeing my aunt's name on there was um, was amazing to see because I didn't know she even went to school here. That's right. You know? a, a lot of people yeah. didn't because she moved away, you know, right after, uh, you know, high school. But yeah, graduated from Susie B. Gibson. So did my mom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's amazing also when you talk about the level of education, those two women, my mom and my aunt Georgia, were two of the most educated black women I've ever known. Mm -hmm. So that tells you the level of ed education that they received at Susie B. Gibson as well. Right. So another a little bit of another history that people don't know um, for the people who say that, you know, Bedford is not a racist town. Here, here's a quick <laughs> history for you that I want to throw in there because a lot of people have been saying this and we're not talking about 200 years ago. This is. Uh, 1960s, 1970s. That's right. I was thinking uh, about some of them names that you read. <laughs> right. So, um, when they decided to integrate the school because the federal government said that the schools had to be integrated, uh, Susie B. Gibson had to shut down because even though most students, you could, Susie B. Gibson could have still been open, but no white students decided to go to Susie B. Gibson. So black students decided to go to Liberty High School. So being that Susie B. Gibson wasn't integrated. It had to shut down. That's right. So what happened was when they integrated the school, the Ku Klux Klan in Bedford burned a cross in front of the superintendent's yard to where he resigned that same day. And then the next day, the Ku Klux Klan demanded a meeting with the new superintendent and the new superintendent told him basically it was out of, it, out of his hands that they had to integrate the school. But we see early on that some of you guys, grandparents, Great-grandparents did not want black students to be at Liberty High School. This is why we're having this podcast, because when you say that racism doesn't exist in Bedford, some of these people are still alive. That's right. <laughs> the, the ironic thing is, is that happened in Bedford in a short distance in Lynchburg. It, the opposite happened to avoid that type of situation. Mm -hmm. They integrated Dunbar. Right. So you had white students who was willing to go to, to Dunbar, mm -hmm. and all of that was done to prevent happening there, what happened in Bedford. Absolutely. Um, 
the people who really pushed for the name to be reinstated, um, I don't have a list of names here, but I know one of them was Beulah Payne, who has been a member of the NAACP for over 50 years. Um, also, while this is happening in Bedford with the Susie B. Gibson name change, uh, in Amherst, Central High School is also getting their marker back as well because uh, Central High School was another African-American high school that was um, that was in the area. Real quick, let's 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 go back for one quick second and talk about this whole Virginia area from Albemarle County, Bedford County, Campbell County, um, Dinwiddie County, uh, Halifax, Fauquier County, mm-hmm. all the way to Spotsylvania County. I just want to talk about the number of, of blacks that was in this area during this time, going all the way back to 1790 in terms of slaves, because, um, of course, slavery was still legal. Yes. Um, 1790 in this area, 287,959 slaves mm-hmm. in Virginia compared to West Virginia, 4,668. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to 1860. You had almost a half a million mm-hmm. blacks in this area during that time. Right. So I, I just I put it in perspective so people can understand that Virginia, when we talk about the deep south and we talk about racism in the south and we talk about slavery in the south, Virginia's included. One of the, Virginia one of the top. is included. One of the top. And I don't want people to think just because you saw the slave trades going on in Spotsylvania County and in Fredericksburg, Virginia, that you thought that was it. Yeah. That they, they traded the slaves and they went down south. No, it was right here, right. happening right here. And you talk about history, plantation history, Bunker Hill, mm-hmm. Bunker Hill straight out 43 had some of the biggest plantations. And to this day, or at least at least on this side of, of Roanoke, has some of the biggest plantations and slave houses that still exist today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, that's one way that you can find, as we talked about the importance of African-American um, ancestry, they're, they're, they they probably kept records of the slaves that they had here in Virginia. That's one of the ways that you can find your family history is by going through their records. That um, in the Green Book, uh, because the Green Book obviously kept records of, of slaves for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. Right. What's the Green Book? That, that's a book that all slave masters had to have um, to keep track of the number of slaves that they have for tax purposes. So without that book, because um, pro- you got to keep in mind, it's like personal property. Right. So you got a car, you got to have it listed, and it's got to be in the tax book. So it's just like that. With it's slaves. just like that with slaves. So, we were property. Absolutely. So when we look at that area, because the schools that I named, you know, a lot of it is the Bridge Street, Edmund Street, Franklin Street, all of that area, which is what we call the black community here in Bedford. Most African-Americans live on that side of town. So when we talk about Susie B. Gibson, the monumental place that is at underneath it is a park called Edmund Street Park that we love dearly. Um, I'll let Shaquan talk about the importance of that park and why it's significant that we take care of that park. Uh, it's significant to the community because it's it's a staple to life for everybody that live on that side of town. Um, it's e- it's accessible. It's easy to walk to. Um, I remember as kids growing up, my first introduction to the ball diamond was uh, a camp over the summer mm-hmm. that uh, Mr. Carson ran, Drax. Mm-hmm. He ran it uh, from, it was eight to three. While your parents was at work, you get dropped off, you bring a lunch, you play kickball, you play basketball, you play 
we play sports that you normally wouldn't play, mm-hmm. uh, like kickball, soccer. Um, that was the first time I probably ever swung a bat in baseball. Horseshoes. 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 Um, I, I can't forget the woman's name that helped. Uh, you know, she was a bigger lady. Miss Champagne. Yeah, Miss Champagne it was a white woman. She helped Mr. Carson every year. Uh, Kelly Garrett helped. Yes. Um, he was he was monumental. That was uh that was like the staple for the black community. Um. For sports, for me, that was the first place I learned how to cuss on the basketball court. <laughs> and and that's that is it's, it's pivotal because uh, that camp was free, and Edmund Street Park is is so monumental because again, it's in the heart of the black community. Now we're starting to see the rest of Bedford have events there. Yeah. You know, a lot of times uh, back in the day, white people were afraid to go to Edmund Street Park. But be, we began to have programs there, like the summer camp, like Boots Kids, mm-hmm. um, that brought white people to Edmund Street Park to begin to, to look at the community different. But it's also important that we begin to take care of that community um, as best as we can, because if we want things to, to remain um, unbroken, then we have to take care of our community. I just went to Liberty Lake Park yesterday, and it was trash everywhere. And that is not the black community's park, but it's still a park. And we have to take care of our things right. because it represents who we is. Now, I know you might say it's somebody else's job to pick up the, the trash, but no, it's, it's your job. It's, it's your, your job. community. It's, your it, it, it's what you represent. Um, we, we don't want trash. I mean, there's been times where Edmund Street has been vandalized. Um, they wrote uh, derogatory terms on the the poles of the basketball court, understand that there are kids walking down there. Understand that when people are down there pitching horseshoes and breaking glass, understand that is a place, the park is the place where kids are able to grow. Should be a safe haven. Right. So we have to take care of of that. Um, That's why Edmund Street Park is so good because it's right underneath Susie B. Gibson. So when you talk about the heart of the black community, that is the place that we're talking about. That's right. And if, if you go a little bit further up, and I think we'll get into this a little later, you had the the first Head Start school mm-hmm. in this area right there on, on, on Franklin Street. Absolutely. We're going to get into I that. You, all you all, all, all you did. Well, so any, any, anybody that's around the age of 30 or, or a little bit older went to that Head Start before they went to actual school. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back again. Subscribe on the YouTube channel, um, Mighty Motivation Network. Again, on the YouTube channel at the Mighty Motivation Network. You go back and watch the uh, other episodes. And we did. I do. I forgot to say it in the intro. A few people left some comments on the previous episode. So good. Or bad. good. Um, we appreciate the people who have been leaving comments. We like feedback. Uh, thank you. Thank Don't you. leave no bad ones. We actually leave us whatever you want. You know, we as we said in the beginning, we're not here to be right. We're, no. here, to, we're here to 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 hopefully uh, instigate conversation um, and thought more so than anything. So as long as your response is thoughtful, thoughtful, because we want you to think about it and 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 have some good information when you you give us some negative feedback or you disagree, we just ask that you do your due diligence and just don't speak from what somebody may have told you. Absolutely. Bring some facts. <laughs> uh, I'm going to break up. Um, 
Harrison High School, which well Harrison Harrison School, which was Lucy Addison, which is now Lucy Addison in Roanoke. Um, I'm bringing this up because I spoke there, so I did not know this when I after I spoke there. But uh, Lucy Addison was born uh, a slave. It was a teacher and elementary school principal in Roanoke who was largely responsible for bringing high school level ed- high school level education to the city's African Americans. Addison taught briefly in uh, Loudoun County before moving to Roanoke in 1887. She served briefly as an intern principal at the city's first ward color school before resuming her regular teaching duties. In 1918, she became principal of the Harrison School. Although the school offered classes only up to grade eight, Addison campaigned for a secondary school curriculum, uh, steadily advancing uh, study adding advanced classes. The State Board of Education accredited Harrison as a high school in 1924. Addison retired from the position after the 1926-1927 school year in the city named after her in the school named after her in 1928. Now, all starting when Roanoke was Gainsborough. 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 Yeah. A lot of history in, in Gainsborough. A lot, a lot of, history of history in Gainsborough. We, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the historical figures from Roanoke as we absolutely because um, there's one guy who actually does the the tour and and speak a lot about um, the Gainesboro area that I'll mention later. Um, Barbara Johns in Farmville. I think we mentioned her twice in previous episodes. That's right. Uh, Barbara Johns was a 16-year-old high school girl in Prince Edward County, Virginia, led her classmates to a strike to protest the the substandard conditions at Robert Russett Morrison High School. Her idealism, planning, and persistence ultimately garnered the support of NAACP lawyers, uh, Spotswood, Robinson, and Oliver Hill to take up her case and to call some more equitable conditions of Morton High School. After meeting with the students and the community, lawyers, Spotswood, Robinson, and Oliver Hill filed a lawsuit, and she became part of the um, the the case that we know as Brown of the Board of Education. Right. Actually, it was another one, too, is Davis versus the school board uh, Prince, Prince Edward, Edward County, yeah. because uh, although Barbara Johns was the first one, she was 11th grade, I think. Mm-hmm. She was the one who did stage the first strike, if you will, or, or walk out. But it was another girl. Last name was Davis. I can't think of her first name. She was a ninth grader. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who they ended up putting on the the suit. Her name is on the on the lawsuit, which is why it's Davis versus school of uh, board of Prince Edward County and not John. Right. So, her dad uh, didn't want her, her name listed because he was fear in fear of retaliation against her. Right. So that's Davis versus uh, Prince Edward. Yep. Um, again, same area. A couple years later, what happens in Farmville, uh, Farmville, the Farmville, uh, the Prince Edward school closes mm-hmm. because once the integration happens, the white people put their money together and opened up a private school. That's right. And, they didn't get any funding for the the Prince Edward Public Schools, so they actually had to shut school down from 1959 to 1964. Actually, a guy I just worked, uh, he just retired. He tell me he remember vividly when that happened because you either had to drive an hour, hour and thirty minutes to the next school, or you just didn't go to school at that time. That's the, right. Um, so we again we see the prejudice that happens in Virginia, um, right in our area. Uh, the sit-in, the Patterson Six in Lynchburg, uh, James Herner, Kenneth Green, um, the recipient of the coffee was a student at Virginia Seminary. Barbara Thomas, who was clutching a Bible, was was his classmate. Uh, Terrell Brumbeck was Hunter's friend at Lynchburg College. 
Mary Edith Bentley and Rebecca Owen were from Randolph-Macon's Women's College, and the six students were convicted and sentenced to 30 days in jail after they um, integrated a, I think it was a drugstore in Lynchburg, Virginia. That's right. In 1960. And in Danville, not far from here. Uh, it's ironic because when we talked about Danville on the podcast, we talked about the level of violence, yeah, um, black on black violence that goes on in Danville. Danville, from the very beginning, has always been predominantly black, which is little known history fact. A lot of people don't know, and even today, it is still mostly mm -hmm. uh, populated by African Americans. In 1883, they had a riot, race riot, in Danville. Mm -hmm. um, it was a huge riot and. Five or six people were killed. Um, four of them were African-Americans. Uh, and although the government ruled that the white community, first time that I ever I ever found case history that said that a judge ruled the white community, not an individual, mm -hmm. but a white community was at fault. Mm -hmm. Yet nobody from the white community was prosecuted or found guilty of anything. Wow. But they ruled that it was the white community's fault. <laughs> Two blacks were tried. One was found guilty for their part in the white person being being killed doing that. But that was a huge riot. So also, this is important because when we talk about how things have handed down to us from our ancestors, mm -hmm. whether it's their their demons, their thoughts, uh, their ways of actions, their beliefs, whatever it is that was handed down. You can look at Danville and see why things like what's happening right now, why they happen. Mm -hmm. It's always been violent in Danville. This ride in 1883 was just something that came to the forefront because of how it transpired and that the court actually ruled that the white community was at fault. Wow. But that wow. was something I found that I, I looked at that and went, wow. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Ann Spencer out of Lynchburg, Virginia, was uh, she taught 20 years at Dunbar High School, all black Dunbar High School, to which she didn't. She brought in her own books that she wrote. And those writings were actually a huge part of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, even though she wasn't living in New York, um, her her writings were so great that it was part of it was a huge influence on the Harlem Renaissance movement. And she also um, she was a poet. So she was also um, a, a head person in developing the NAACP out of Lynchburg. Our, her house is actually still in Lynchburg that you can actually, uh, I think you can go visit. Um, but I just found out this information myself and I've passed that house a million times. That's and right. had no idea that's that's right. what, that was there. I'm going to stay in Danville for a second. Uh, 1919. The first black owned bank. Danville, Virginia. Mm. Danville, Virginia. First black owned bank. Wow. A lot of history in this area. It, you know, it, it blows me away that every time people talk about history, first thing they talk about is Appomattox. Mm -hmm, right. And then they're straight off to D.C. Mm -hmm. or they're straight off to Richmond um, or straight to Lexington. Nobody looks at this area where there's a lot of history in this area, a lot of black history in and, this area. And I believe, you know, and I hate to blame. I, I don't want to blame our school system. I, I blame us as well for not teaching this information or learning this information and passing it on. But when you talk about Black History Month, it has to be more. We keep saying this on this podcast. It has to be more. We know who Martin Luther King was. Okay. We know That's who right. Rosa Parks was. You taught us first grade, second grade, third grade on up. 
we can begin to talk about the monumental things that happen in this area as long as well as people that we may not have heard about. But there are so many people who don't want to talk about this information because it makes other people look bad. As we talk, we've seen some names on a list of some of the racist things right. that happened in the area. That last name we can correlate to right. some people we went to school with. So we don't want to talk about these things because we don't want to make anybody feel bad. And, and we don't know that those last names are associated right. with the people that you know today. We don't know, but, but we don't want you Just to speculate saying. either. But we don't know. Is it a possibility? I'll let you be the judge of that. Well, but um, those are some things that um, you you have any more? Oh, I'll, let you, yeah. I'll, I'll let you go. go. Yeah, let's, I'll, I'll let's, let you go. Let me, I'm going to go Roanoke real quick. Um, and we're going to just talk about some things that happened right here in Roanoke that we may have heard larger stories in other areas, but some of the things that happened are very similar. So let's go 1939. Um, there was a uh, a situation where you had Chauncey Harmon, principal of an all-black uh, training school in Pulaski, sued Pulaski County School Board for equalization of facilities. The board made plans to rebuild the school after it burned in 1938, ironically. Uh, but Harmon wants a bigger one, which is what the plans were. Um, at the same time, Willis gravely sued the board for equalization of pay for black educators. If both suits were lost. But Harmon later becomes principal of Salem's George Washington's Carver School. Mm. So him being at the forefront led to more things happening in that area, even including the George Washington Carver School in Salem, which was huge. 1946, um, Margie Jumper, a black woman, violates a Roanoke ordinance by refusing to give her seat on a trolley to a white man. Mm -hmm. She is dragged from the car and jailed. Jumper pleads guilty and pays a small fine, and the incident is forgotten. 1946. 1946. Hmm. 1946. So you do the math on uh, Rosa, Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. You, yeah. you do the math. Yeah. This 1946. Right. right here, Roanoke, locally. Roanoke. Mm -hmm. I, I just think, to me, when you look at what, what happened in these areas, um, it's huge. Uh, first black students to enter Roanoke um, Patriot Schools, 1954. Um, that's 16 years before you had those type of integrations going on in Bedford County. Mm -hmm. um, let me find one more. Take it down. Before I talk anymore about Rona, we're going to get to the peaks of order real quick. Just real take, take quick. Take the floor. Take the I asked everybody good. to do some research on black history with the peaks of order. Mm -hmm. The peaks in general, which just so people know, the Appalachian Mountains runs from North Carolina all the way clear to Northern Virginia. Um, and that was the cut through for Appomattox getting to Lexington. Mm -hmm. Just keep in mind, troops was walking those paths long before they was roads, mm -hmm. which is huge. But you also had blacks that fl that, that fleed when they escaped slavery would go to the mountains because the Indians were there. Right. And they created unions with the Indians and lived in the Appalachian Mountains, the Peaks of Otter area. Some of that land that they, to present day Peaks of Otter were owned by black people mm. and was sold, which is why you have the Peaks of Otter today. And there's a lot of uh, slave cemeteries mm -hmm. on the mountain, which is why you have places that are blocked off because they're cemeteries. Mm -hmm. And uh, those cemeteries will probably last forever 
So there's a lot of black history in the Peaks Order. So I asked people, one, do your due diligence. Also, the Peaks Order was one of the first establishments in Virginia to consider integration Mm -hmm. long before that there was talks of integration. So when they created these picnic areas, they had to to decide whether we wanted to make them integrated or segregated. So Mm -hmm. what they would do is they would create a few uh, segregated ones and then a few integrated ones. And people say, well, why would they do that? They had to take into consideration who was going to use it. You had over a half a million blacks living in this area during that time. Mm -hmm. They had to consider these folks was going to be using those picnic areas. Mm -hmm. And they took that in consideration. They even created the first bathrooms that had integrated restrooms. Mm -hmm. Now, they had the toilets to where you didn't have to necessarily use the same toilet, but the building itself, the restroom itself, integrated. Now, for the people listening, um, they know how to use Google. But what what can they do to find some of these some of this information? I, I, I will be 100 percent honest with you. You guys found this out, too. Google was not enough. Right. There was too much in this area to really find truth. Mm-hmm. You, I picked up the phone. I called some people. I called some museums. I called some people that the museums folks uh, gave me information for. I called them because I can tell you that most of those people ain't doing emails. So I called them <laughs> and I really got pushed in the right direction to find out some information, which led us to a book. What's the name of the book we were we were looking for? Um, uh, 250 years of African-American history, something like that. Yeah. Uh, in Bedford County, which is a book that if anybody has it, please send us something on 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 uh, Facebook or YouTube or something, because we want to get this book. We want to order it, but we kind of want it like yesterday. I don't yeah. want to wait until, you know, next week. If, if anybody knows, it's called Bear for Black History 250 Years by Annie S. Pollard. I'm going to ask around. Um, I, it is somebody on Facebook by this name. I don't know if this is the person that wrote it, but I am going to try to figure out where we can find this book. Bear for Black History 250 Years by Annie S. Pollard. And, and you know, I, I find it funny because anybody that's my age or older all remember uh, Liz Miller. Mm-hmm. And Liz Miller was at one point was the only black barber in Bedford. Mm-hmm. So everybody went to Liz to get their hair cut. I remember Liz talked about Annie S. Pollard, which which is why it led me to try to find the book, because I remember her talking about her, this this person in, in her barbershop. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could not find the book. I know you can get it on Amazon. But like I said, we were trying to find it sooner. I didn't want it shipped to me and have to wait for it. So if, if anybody has any information regarding that book, hit us up. Absolutely. Hey, um, we pay good too. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we pay we pay for our information. We pay for our information. That, that, that's, that's valuable. <laughs> you know? um, I found a lot of information just from a, a one, It was I guess it was a article um, by Tracy Bryant Richardson. Um, she wrote about Susie B. Gibson, the last segregated school and when she went through the Bedford history, the chronology of history um, that led up to Susie B. Gibson. So a lot of my information came just from that, huh? Yeah, chronology. I haven't said it this episode. That's right. So there it is. Um, but again, a lot of times Google is not enough. Um, like you talked about, you might have to visit your, you might have to look up articles. You might have to, you know, go to your local museum, find names, look up names. You, That's right. you, there's a lot of things that you might have to go through and it. You might have to read a whole book to find three sentences of information and then go off that and move forward to the next thing. But um, it is ways that you can find information. But like Dad said, the first thing you can do is talk to people. Um, Again, when we talk about Susie B. Gibson, 
there are still some people that are still alive who attended Susie B. Gibson. So we can get information just from them. Um, so we have to begin to open up as a community to begin to share information so the next generation can have it. Absolutely. Because without them bringing the Susie B. Gibson name back, I wouldn't know anything about what I just read. That, that's right. You know, so by those people being the forerunners and bringing Susie B. Gibson back, um, I wouldn't have had the information that that's I had. That's right. I, there's two other people I want to mention real quick that were instrumental one in, in informing me about certain things about Bedford and also the black history in Bedford. And they did it because uh, one, that's what they do. One of them was an educator, Christine Day. Okay. And uh, Christine Day, um, relative, love of the deaf, mm -hmm. will always love of the deaf, but very instrumental in early education mm -hmm. for the black community. She was one of the teachers and one of the administrators at the Head Start Center in Bedford that most kids went to pre-kindergarten. Uh, so you, you, <laughs> you basically had to get on the list to get in there. And every parent wanted their kids to be there. One, you could trust them. So just so people know, part of early education is daycare. So it's people you're trusting your kids with while you go to work. Two, since they have to be a daycare, can you teach them something? Yeah. And that's what Head Start did. And Christine Day was a pioneer at doing that and did it for many years. The second person is the person who was responsible for help building the, the center. Henry H. Well, Henry, I think it's M. Carey, but Henry Carey built that center on, on Bridge Street. And uh, they're, still I, they're still there today. And I remember uh, Cameron going there, you two going there, mm -hmm. and everybody wanted their child in that program. Um, early learning was very important to the black community and getting quality early learning was important to Christine Day. Mm -hmm. And for the ones that don't know the building he's talking about, is the one that's on the hilltop. That's right. Uh, I think they use it for bridge school or was using it for bridge school at one point. But Henry Carey, just to talk about him for a second, um, he did some amazing things in this community long before many black people were involved. Mm -hmm. And and in all respect to him, I think in the black community, a lot of people used to think he was a seller. And but what he was is he was a civil rights leader in Bedford County before people even realized he was. I'm one of those people that it didn't dawn on me until after, well, right before he passed away, that this guy was doing the same things in Bedford County that people like Mega Evers were doing down in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You know, we just didn't view him that way, but he was doing it. He was going to these meetings. He, he was building things in the community. The house that we lived in for many years on Short Street was built by him and and people that he hired. Um, he was there to help people in the black community, even when black people didn't respect him. He didn't care. Yeah. He did the right things for, for people that he thought would benefit from it. And I want to say thank you to Mr. Carey. Um, my brother's probably going to laugh because when we were kids, we didn't view him that way. But today we do. Absolutely. We view him the way he should have been viewed there as a pioneer in Bedford County. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And <laughs> we are back. Uh, again, subscribe, comment on YouTube, Mighty Motivation Network. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for all your support. We love you. Um, we're going to go 
we're gonna just have a brief conversation for a second. Let's let's take a step away from uh, names and events. Why is it important for us to invest in support in our community? Let's just have a small conversation for a second. Um, I know we like to stick to facts. I know we like to stick to evidence, but let, let's throw our opinion in for one second. Why is it important for us to invest in support in our community? I, I, to be honest with you, if you want economical growth in your community, you have to have businesses in that community mm -hmm. that spend their money in that community. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we you, you hear the term recycle money. And in our community, we say recycle black dollars. Right. Okay. So that means I go to a store in my community and I spend my money at that store in my community. And then that store in turns spend their money in this community. It helps that economical development we talk about in the community. That's important. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to do is spend your money at a store in your community. And then that store does nothing in your community. There's no investment whatsoever in your community. Yeah. That is a form of segregation. And we've talked about that before is where you have blacks live in one area, but they control nothing about that area. Not the economical development, not the businesses, not the, the, the properties that mm -hmm. people live in. So in order to increase that economical value in a community, you have to have companies that invest in that area. Mm -hmm. And you can see locally um, how that affects the community. If a company does not come in and put a Walmart in your community, a drugstore in your community, a bank in your community, that community is not going to survive. Mm -hmm. If you look at any surviving community, let's look at the black community. Let's look here. Let's look Danville. Let's look Farmville. Let's look Roanoke. Let's look Lynchburg. They put churches. They put banks. Because mm -hmm. you got to have hope. So without hope, you have anything. So that's your church. And you got to have somewhere to put the money that comes from the hope. So you got to have the banks. But then you need facilities where people can buy groceries. Mm -hmm. So you put grocery stores and walking distance in those communities. Those are businesses that are vested and they're investing in those communities so that those communities can strive. When those stores don't do that, those communities don't last. Mm -hmm. uh, so. When I think of investing, I, we're talking about money, which is which is great because I believe that there are some stores that are in the black community who don't do anything for the black community. So I'm trying to figure out why we still spend our money there. Because um, <laughs> most of those stores are name brand stores. They're stores that people recognize. Yeah. They remember. They trust. Right. Exactly. Uh, but when when I think about investing in the community, I think about sharing your experience, your wisdom, no matter what you did in life. Mm -hmm. I, I want to start there because I believe we have this misconception that you have to become something in order to share experiences. That's right. And I believe some of your greatest advice don't come from an old drunk that might tell you what not to do. That's right. Which is fine. He's he's contributing to his community. Hey, look, don't be like me. Absolutely. But, so we have people, you know. You think about especially the black community, which is why Emma Street Park is so so critical, is that you talk about on Sundays, especially back in the day. Sundays was the day everybody, the grown-ups would go play ball. That's right. That's huge for the community. Because why? Because kids get to watch male role model figures, people that they look up to, old people who live it out, they they may not have lived their glory days, whatever the case may be. But you're watching these people that you call your family your loved ones, your That's leaders right. compete 
as something that you you have a passion for. That's right. And the conversations that you can get just there, it may be it may be inappropriate sometimes for some kids, but <laughs> you get the message. You get the message. You get the message and of, the experience. Uh, the barbershop. Shout out to Cheney. When you go into the barbershop, you're in a position to hear some things. And Cheney has a rule to where if older people in there, there's certain conversations that can't be had out of respect for them. That's right. So when and you the number one rule is no cussing. No cussing. So oh. when you begin to look at the the sharing of words, the sharing of history, the sharing of knowledge and experience. When we talk about Susie B. Gibson, um, we have to begin to look at what are we giving our community. So for me, everybody know I don't drink anymore. Could I drink? Yes. But now I'm giving that knowledge and experience to my community for the people who may be struggling there. Now, I'm not just talking about uh, drinking. I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about dropping out of school. I'm talking about whatever the case may be. It is your duty and your responsibility as a as a leader or as an individual in your community to share your experience with somebody that you encounter. Because if you are at the park playing basketball five o'clock Sunday and you're 30 years old and there's a 10 year old over there shooting by himself, your responsibility may not be your kid. You may not be his father. You may not even be kin to him, but it is your due diligence to go over there to that kid, have a conversation because he lives in your community. He's going to have an impact on the future of your community. So when I talk about investing in your community, I believe that you can do with whatever that you have. That's right. I know people, I'm going to get to her a little bit later. Matter of fact, I'm going to just get to her now. I'm going to throw a name out there. Crystal Miller. You talk about somebody who gives to her community by supporting, by giving to her community with her lovely smile, with her hugs. That's how you impact your community. It doesn't have to be giving money. It doesn't have to be doing lavish events. It just means showing up and showing out for your people. And, you know, historically, we 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 did not do that in this county, mm-hmm. in this town, is that people would much rather go shopping in Lynchburg, go to events in Roanoke, mm-hmm. than to participate in events in, in Bedford. I remember in 1996, uh, I went to Dr. Marvin McGinnis and said, hey, I want to start a summer program to get kids interested in learning to play basketball the right way and being able to do it in a competitive nature mm-hmm. by one, tightening up their skills, learning skills, and then being able to do that in a competitive mode without attitude. Mm-hmm. And Mr. McGinnis said to me, when you want to start. And that's something that we did in our community right here at Edmond Street, mm-hmm. using that historical park um, for the same reasons we mentioned that you mentioned, Shaquan, earlier. It was it was accessible. Um, kids could walk there and and it was 100% free. Everything was free. I remember, uh, Marvin's wife, Pam stitched up the jerseys. We went and bought some, (laughs) bought some, uh, some fabric and has patterns and she broke it out and cut it and stitched it up and made uniforms the very first time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we basically pieced it together money wise, however we could to make it work. And then it branched out to us being able to buy uniforms with uh, words and numbers and they were reversible and the whole nine. Um, and we still still have them today. But it was Dr. McGinnis saying, when you want to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Robbie Hensley. For those that know Robbie, 
Uh, Robbie is a longtime friend. His brother and I went to went to high school together, Joe Hensley. And uh, when I went to Robbie with the same idea, Robbie said, what days you need me? Mm -hmm. And what 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 do you want me to do? And I told Robbie, just do what you do. Mm -hmm. And for people that don't know, at the time, 1996, it wasn't a lot of uh, uh, white uh, people going to Edmund Street Park. Park. And Robbie Hensley came there every day and and showed out every day and showed people why he was valuable to the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, to this day, I still attribute Robbie, uh, Robbie Hensley with a lot of what I learned about coaching. Um, along with Dr. Marvin McGinnis and also Gerald Larry, who you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, uh, early in the podcast, what they were people who gave to the community. They invested in the community mm-hmm. and people showed out for those folks. It's funny that you said that was in 96. 96. Yesterday, fast forward 2021, yesterday I'm at a softball game and the umpires is Rob. Rob. So look, the girl was the, the girl was warming up, and then she threw a beautiful pitch on the last one, and it was quiet. And I heard Robbie say, "Nice pitch, girl." And I was like, "He's still doing it. Still doing it. He's still doing it." Still right. Doing um, it. and when you think about a lot of programs that are going today, and I, I don't want to bash anybody, but I have to be honest because this is the unapologetic perspective. Absolutely, so I have to be honest. That's right. When we talk about free. And I'm seeing in this area, churches decided to have basketball camps because they seen that Hoops Kids was a good thing to do. So they decided that they want to do their own camps. That's fine. Um, Other places decided they want to do camps. But when you want to help the African-American community, as as people say that they want to do, especially the kids, give them something to do. That's right. The word free is huge. Absolutely. So if you got to go to stores in Bedford and ask for donations, that's what you got to do. If you got to ask for grant money, that's what you got to do. But before you have a two-day camp and you say $50, $100, understand what your target audience that you said was, African-American kids, are they going to be able to pay that? So that's the reason why Hoops Kids was free, because number one, a lot of the kids lived over there in that African-American community that we talked about from Edmund Street to uh, Franklin Street to uh, Bridge Street to all of those things, South Street, all of those places. To where they could just walk to the thing and they ain't have to they ain't have to go in their pocket. Right? That's right. Didn't have to ask mom. No. For a ride. And that's you right. know what else? Their parents let them walk because they knew who was down there. Right. They knew Jerome was down there. They knew Dr. McGinnis was down there. They knew Raymond Arrington to be down there. They knew Wiggy to be down there. And they said, you in good hands. Go on down there. Do That's I need right. any money? No, nah, they said it was free. Right. Go have Absolutely. fun. Be respectful. Come back. That's what's necessary. So when you say, we can't get kids to come out because you got a price tag beside it. That's right. Now, you'll get some kids to come out, but they're not going to look like what you thought you was going to get. Right. Yep. Because the kids that you want, they don't have money. Well, they, they don't. Number one, their parents ain't going to pay for it. That's right. Because they know somebody that may offer it for free. Right. And, and you, you're talking about multiple kids. You know, you got a parent that you got three or four kids and you got right. a program that's $10 a kid. Right. We got a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing is something you talked about on podcast one or two. Sincerity. 
sincere. Right? right. When you when you when you're gonna do something that you 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 are advertising as being construction um and positive for 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 a child and you're coming into a uh a area like Edmond Street area and you're targeting you're trying to get at risk kids. Let's just be honest. We're we're talking at risk and we talk about at risk in two ways. Um graduating high school and being educated and also criminal justice. Yeah. So these are kids that are at risk to fall into the category of not graduating or not learning anything or going into the criminal system. Mm -hmm. So these are at-risk kids. So when you're talking about doing something to get the attention of these at-risk at-risk kids and hopefully trying to help them, uh, you got to be got to be sincere. Mm -hmm. Well, the minute you attach attach a price to that, you're you're excluding them. They're already excluded. Right. You can forget about <laughs> them. So sometimes the question always arises, how sincere are these organizations? Mm -hmm. right. I mean, if you just want to make money, um, you take your take it to Liberty Lake Park. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Target the take it to the Y. Mm -hmm. Target the people that you really want to target to make your money. But you cannot bring that into a community where you have at risk kids and think that you're doing something helpful, right? Because you're not. And I've seen people have programs down there that cost, and then you have the at risk kids sitting there on their ball, like, man, I wish I could play. Right. That's right. I ain't had a twenty-five dollars right. to to play. Yeah, and and you don't find it sincere enough to say, "Well, and I, listen, I know some of the money that they use, they use to buy lunch." Let me tell you something. Buy getting the kids to be fine with sandwiches. That's if, right. If that's what you can offer them. That's right. You know what I'm saying? It don't it don't take a whole lot of money to to get things done. And I believe a lot of these camps they want to be left. They want to have all of the works they they charge to put more back into it. They don't need all that. That's what right. you have to understand. And also, I have to say, be careful who you exclude. Right. This right. is something that Hoops Kids did early on. They could have very easily excluded the ones that they considered problem child. That's right. They say, you know, you're holding everybody else up. But if your program is sincere, those are the kids that you want. There. That's right. Because if, you're, if you're, your God is to, to get children and to change them and to build character, why are you excluding the ones that need it? That need it the most. So you, you right. have to be very careful with who you exclude, especially when you're talking about the African-American community. And that's why the, the ball diamond is so important, because I remember at, you know, 10, 11, going down there and sometimes not getting to play. Yeah. But watching them, I learned so much. And then when I did get to play, I remember Brian Robertson telling me, yo, Shaquan, if you shoot that, you better make it because you ain't going to get too many more opportunities. Right. That's right. And not only can you apply that to basketball, but you can apply that to life. So giving back to your community, like you said, you know, is your experiences. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to brag or anything, but, you know, we help turn the Bedford community around. Yeah. Everything from the hardware store and back was looked at as, oh, that's that side of town. Yeah. We changed that. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to be right back. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Um, so we're going to get into dropping a little bit of names, a lot of little names that y'all may uh, want to get to know or, or that you should know. I'll let you start with what you want to talk about, Pop. If we want to talk about um, two political leaders from Bedford County, um, one was Noel C. Taylor and the other was Russell Odie. And it might be, it, it could be pronounced Ote. I'm, I'm not, not going to make fun because I don't know, but I'm saying I'm reading it as Russell Odie. Mm -hmm. um, and both became mayors. Um, so 
for Russell Odie, who was a Bedford County native, actually Taylor was too, became political legends in their own right. Odie served as mayor of Bedford City from 1978 to 1980. Now, that was pre-me living in Virginia, but I didn't know that mm -hmm. um, until I started doing research that Bedford had a black mayor in 1978 to 1980. And then Taylor stayed in office as Roanoke's mayor for over 17 years from 1975 to 1992. Mm -hmm. So you had two mayors from Bedford County. One was the mayor of Bedford and the other one became the mayor of Roanoke, mm -hmm. which I thought was huge. I thought that, that was worth that, that, that is huge. That is huge. Uh, Shaquan, give me somebody previously or now that's impacting the local community. Uh, you. Thank you, man. Um, I mean, what you've what you've turned your life from and turned it into. Um, because I mean, you know, in the beginning of your early twenties, it was about you, mm -hmm. and you turned that into fixing you. And fixing your community. Mm -hmm. Now you're on to bettering your community, teaching your community, making sure your community learns. Um, I've seen you go out your way and give kids TVs to go to college. I've seen you go out your way to, yo, you need a ride here, I'll come get you. Uh, I've seen you buy kids food that needed that need food. They might not have said they needed food, but you knew they needed food. Mm -hmm. Um, so just the part that you play in these not only the younger kids' lives, but the adults' lives as well. Because you're you're essentially helping them parent their kids better. Because they might not. It's some things that they tell you that they might not tell their parents. Mm -hmm. And you know that's that's just one of the things that I believe is my responsibility. You know, if I'm driving and I see my youngin walking to work, <laughs> why wouldn't I pull over and give my man a ride to work, right. regardless of what I'm doing? If he if he's I'm happy that he's even going to work. So why wouldn't I give him a ride to work or or help with this or help with that? Um, I feel like I don't like like we talk about we don't like praise for it because we feel like it's our responsibility right, to right. do so. Um, I'm gonna go with two people. I got we got T in here too. Uh, <laughs> T didn't get the the honor to. I don't think he get to play for these two. But when you were first started playing football, you couldn't wait to play for Jerome Evans and Steve Brawler. When you when you heard the Road Devils up there, you couldn't wait till That's you right. got to play for them too. Um, and I believe those two were monumental because of the way that they coached. Whatever from six to seven thirty, you theirs. That's right. I don't care about with your mama, your daddy. They over there. Whatever happens from 6 to 7.30, it's ours. Whether they're teaching you, whether they're correcting you, whether they're instilling in you uh, valuable information, you were theirs. And there's so many coaches that just focus on the game and they allow their parents, they allow parents to come in and dictate what goes on. Not with Jerome and Steve Brawler. No. Not with Jerome Evans and Steve Brawler. They were going to do what they wanted to do and listen, they have a problem. You show up to the game and you miss Thursday's practice, you might as well take your shoulder pads you off. You ain't playing. They, they ain't care about the rules. Didn't care if the other team say, well, that person didn't play. I don't even care. You might as well take everything off and stand right, right here. You ain't playing. If you got an attitude, you might as well turn your jersey inside out. You ain't playing. And most of the time, Steve did that to his own nephew. Absolutely. Right. So when you look at 
And they, they balanced each other out greatly because Jerome just controlled the offense and Steve controlled the defense. That's right. And, and, and there was no there was no back and forth between the two. But they you couldn't wait to play to play under two great black leaders in which um Steve continued to coach and, and Rome is still umpiring. Yeah, so right. when you talk about two people who just love to give back to their community, uh Jerome Evans and, and Steve Brawley. I'm gonna mention um Somebody you mentioned earlier, Gerald Larry, uh, rest in power. Um, for those that play football at Liberty um, for many years, he was one of the commentators or announcers, if you will, um, not just on the loudspeaker there, but also on the radio station, mm -hmm. um, which was huge. Channel 12 at that time. That's absolutely, absolutely was huge. And to people like um, uh, uh, some of the people that played football with Robert Ellick and them, mm -hmm. they referred to Gerald Larry as get low because he would always tell you to get low. You got to get low, mm -hmm. get low. But outside of that, I'm going to tell you a story that you guys probably don't even know. Um, when we first moved here, uh, it was me and Eugene and a couple other, um, we just call them hardheads, uh, people who just, you know, we lived in our own world. Uh, nowadays, you probably call it thug. Back then, that wasn't a word. We were just hardheads. And Gerald came to us one day and said, I want y'all to be in the parade. <laughs> Clowns? <laughs> what do you want us to be? He said, I'm going to teach y'all how to march. Really? He said, yeah, I'm going to teach y'all how to march. And guess what? He taught us how to march. He got us some bayonets. They made them out of wood. I don't even know who made them. But they made these things out of wood. And he taught us how to march. And we marched in the parade. And we had a blast. And Gerald was no nonsense. Be late and see what he. <laughs> and the funny thing is, we wanted to be a part of this. We talked about school sports back in the day. You go to practice, the coach said, we running two miles. We running two miles. <laughs> Nowadays, you go to practice, we running two miles. Yeah, y'all running two miles. <laughs> what do you mean we put this helmet, coach? I can't play no football. You know, we wanted to be a part of it. And Gerald sensed we wanted to be a part of something. And instead of us being a part of a gang, he said, I want you to be a part of this march, this parade. And he taught us and we had a blast and we killed it. First time I was in the newspaper for something good. <laughs> I remember one of his quotes was, um, uh, players commit stupid fouls when you're tired. <laughs> oh, absolutely. One of his favorite quotes. He was your first basketball he coach. Was. He was, and I, I couldn't wait to play for him the next year. Then he stopped coaching that he was, next year. Uh, he, he was the first coach I ever seen smack a player on the tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gerald actually swindled me in the coaching. Uh, after he coached you the first year, he came back and said, man, I need an assistant coach. I need you to come on and coach with me. And Gerald coached two teams, by the way. He, he, he had two teams. He had a seven and eight year old team and a nine and 10 year old team. And he said, I need an assistant coach. Yeah. Assistant became the head coach. I scrambled, called Marvin McGinnis once again. <laughs> Marvin McGinnis came to my rescue and thus began the, the, the coaching career. Uh, and then uh, you had two teams. And then I had two teams. I inherited them from Gerald Larry. <laughs> uh, I had Gerald Larry down, um, but I also had him. Um, with Gary Larry, um, because I believe they balanced each other out so well. That's right. When you thought about Gary Larry, you thought about disciplinary. 
You thought about somebody that that wasn't going to be shy about about the way that they say things, and he gonna let you know. He gonna kick you out. He gonna do all these other things, and he, he put he put fear. And that's and I would, yeah, it, he put fear into a lot of kids, and a lot of kids may not like them then. But once they they graduated or became adults, they understood what Gary Larry was doing. And there are a few people I'm not gonna say no names that Gary Larry saved them from oh, from from uh, dropping out or not being productive. Um, we, if you talk about Liberty or you talking about Standing River, either place he was monumental in both places. Um, and again, they balanced each other out so well. Yeah, I was so scared of Gary Larry, <laughs> like when I was younger. Because of his voice, but so which leads me to who I would choose next, um, Mr. Eggleston. I was so scared of Mr. Eggleston. <laughs> Junebug, June Junebug for those. Junebug had a he had a um, I don't know what to call it. A presence. He had a presence, <laughs> but then he created something called What's Next. What's Next? What's Next Day? Still and probably one of the best events that yeah, Bedford ever at had. Liberty. So in the morning. You go, you get signed up. They had the relay races. They had the sack race. It was like a big field day for kids. That's what right. It was. Um, and then you go inside to the high school gym. And what kid at eight, nine years old would not want to play on Liberty's floor? Yeah. That you've seen those guys win state championships. That's right. So we get to go in there and play an NBA, I mean, play a uh, basketball tournament all day. I think it started at eight o'clock and it ended at three o'clock. All day event free of charge for everything. Right. Speaking of Junebug, Junebug was one of the officials that would come and referee the Hoops Kid basketball. Yeah, hated him as an official. Yeah, uh, Junebug, <laughs> Raymond Arrington, um, uh, Buster Eggleston, which was Junebug's yeah. brother. They would come and referee the for the for free, and and that's important because I, I I can't stress to you how difficult it is to get people to volunteer their time. And Jerome community. Evans as well. Jerome free. Evans. Uh, these uh, uh, these people would come out. Um, uh, Janelle Leftwich, mm -hmm. Shirley Staples, mm -hmm. they would come out and, and volunteer their time to to participate. Now, mind you, we were talking summertime. We were talking some of them days, <laughs> uh, hundred degrees, mm -hmm. and these folks was out there doing it. Understand me when I say doing it. Teaching kids how to play basketball the right way, mm -hmm. doing it in a hundred degree we weather, and we were doing it four days, yeah. three days during the week, and then Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, you talking about monumental? Um, I'm gonna go with cliche. We talk about him a lot, but of course, Cheney. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do one for personal reasons when it came to Cheney, because we know Cheney's status barbershop. You know the work he does in the community, but for me, it was more personal because. I grew up down the street from Cheney and always looked up to Cheney because again, he's on a he's a star on a high we didn't look up to the NBA stars. We looked right. up to high school the high school players because yeah. you know, we traveled all the way to Norfolk to watch them play. That's right. This is how big of stars they were. And just seeing Cheney Preston was always like it would leave me starstruck sometimes because I'm like, that's Cheney Preston. Right. That's number 40, 40, 41. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when you looked at that, it became starstruck. And as I got older, you know, Cheney would, you know, come play in the driveway, you know. And then when I got to high school, he would come ring the doorbell Sunday morning. He would come ring the doorbell and say, hey, Marianne, I'm going to play basketball. I was wondering if Baker can come with me. And my mom said, you want to go with Cheney? Heck yeah, I want to go. <laughs> Even though I may only get to play once, but the fact that he 
you know, took his time out of his day to even think I'm on the way to go play ball. Let me stop to see if, if Baker wants to come. And I incorporated that in my own life. So if I'm going to play ball, I'll text Caitlin and say, hey, do Marcus want to go to the park? Do such and such want to go to the park? It's because Chaney instilled that in me. And that's why I am who I am today, because of people like him. I'm also going to throw in a person who helped one of my one of my great friends, which is uh, Julian Poindexter is one of Shaquan's best friends. You know, we like bro. We all like brothers. We grew up like brothers. But what Brian Robinson did with Dooney or Julian Poindexter was take him under his wing to where Dooney was light years of hit of people in sports because of what an older person taught him and took him under his wing. You know, some of the moves that that Julian Poindexter or Dooney was doing at age 10 or 11, we weren't even thinking about because Brian Robinson, you know, took the time out of his day to treat Julian Poindexter like a little brother and teach them, teach him those things early on to where he was already mature at age 10 and 11. You know, when Shaquan and them at Hoops Kids, they were supposed to play with the younger kids. And Shaquan and Dooney go over and play with the older kids. And I see Dooney smack somebody's shot across the, the to the tennis court. Nah, it wasn't somebody. It was <laughs> <laughs> You know, we had That's elementary. That's a Hoops Kid legend. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't talk about Tarrant there. That's a Hoops Kid legend. Right. Elementary school, he blocked somebody's shots out into the second grade hallway. Like, it's like, <laughs> so Dooney was light years ahead of people, but... A lot of credit goes to people like Brian Robinson, yeah. who took the time out of his day to take somebody like that under his wing. Yeah, him, Rail Garrett. You know, even even with with those two, B. Rob and Rail Garrett. You know, even because you know most of the time, you know, when you when you doing something or when everybody goes this way, and it's like you know, it's easy to go that way. But they told Dooney, "Nah, you're not going that way. Yeah, you're not gonna do that." I, I remember, you know, Cheney. Uh, is this a little known fact? Cheney uh, was one of the people I used to talk to way back in the day, 96, 97, early 2000. Um, he, 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 uh, he worked at a barbershop for a guy who also was doing the same thing with kids in Roanoke that we were doing in Bedford at the time, which is why we went to Roanoke and played play yeah. other kids in Roanoke. Um, <laughs> and uh, I used to always ask Cheney, you know, why are you working for him? He's he's out traveling, doing all this stuff. You holding down the barbershop every day mm -hmm. should be yours, you know. And the funny thing is, is Cheney wasn't like I would have been. And some man, don't tell me I run my business, man. Get out mm -hmm. of here. You know, he was he listened. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very respectful when he listened. Um, and we used to talk. I'm not gonna say a lot, but we we did talk on occasions where I was urging him to, you know, that should be in his his business. Mm -hmm. Why well, work for somebody else who ain't even here? You here every day. Um, and I always applaud people who are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I can tell you now, that's probably the hardest thing to do because your income is based on what you produce. Mm -hmm. So it ain't based on how many hours you work. It's based on you producing. Mm -hmm. So I, I would always say that Cheney has to be in that category of people that you should look up to, mm -hmm. whether it's sports or whether it's just the way he conduct himself the way he deals with the youth, the way he dealt with you when you were younger, mm -hmm. but also being that entrepreneur and creating something that we call the cornerstone in the black community, a barbershop, mm -hmm. a barbershop. I think that is awesome. So yeah, more than just uh, hats off to Cheney.
more than just hats off to Cheney. I remember uh, the night of the night before Bake's wedding, we had sheets, and it's like midnight, and I see somebody I work with, and I was like, man, look like you just got your hair cut. He was like, yeah, I just left. I left the shop. Cheney gave me a cut because I'm going out of town tomorrow. Like, wait, Cheney was at the barbershop at midnight? He was like, yeah, because he, he, he knew I was going out of town, so he said, come over, and I, I cut you in at midnight. That's the type of person he is. That's awesome. That's the type of person I remember is. my senior photos, I needed a haircut. The barbershop was closed. And he was like, come now, I'll cut you on the I'll cut you in the driveway. You you almost want to just stop the podcast <laughs> after this. Like, the, I mean? like that's <laughs> like, that's it. I, I know he hates being praised right. because again, he feel like that's his responsibility. That's right. That's just who he is. Um y'all got any other people? I got one. And I ain't saying it just because he just because he's sitting in here, but uh one of the people that has the biggest hearts in the world, uh, T. Uh, Hi, Tyron. It's, it's so many times that I've been with this dude and we show up at a football game or a basketball game and you can hear the kids saying, Mom, that go T, that go T. It's because the energy that, that he brings with him. You know, he loves on everybody, no matter who you is, if you're the best player, the worst player. He just loves on everybody. And his heart is it's so big and it's for the community. When you talk about how big when you talk about Bedford people, T is Bedford. Yeah. The the love that he gives other people. And you you know, no matter what's going on, and most of the time I'll if we was doing something and I know T was busy, I'll text him and let him know what we was doing. But I'm like, I understand if you can't be there. He still is. And if he gotta show up for five minutes, he'll show up. That's just the type of person he is. I don't expect T to be there sometimes, but he'll still show up for five to ten minutes. If that's what he got to do and the drive to come down and do that, you know, that's just some, that's just something you can't teach somebody. That's, that's just right. people who, who have heart. Um, I got, I got two more real quick. Go ahead. You know, people always come to me and they say, man, you ought to be, I know you so proud of your son. I'm proud of him regardless. <laughs> not, not just because of what they do. I'm proud because they're my son, you know, but I do want to say that, I'm very proud of the two of you, very proud of the two of you and what you guys have done in your individual lives, the way you uh, take people like T under your wing and 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 uh, create this new era. And I, I, I see the, the new Bedford mentoring, I think is awesome because that's what you're doing, creating a new era of 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 men, responsible black men. And I, I think that's huge because obviously when you look at these podcasts, when we talk about the evolution of the black man going all the way back to Kunta Kinte, mm -hmm. how obviously a lot of people looked at roots and they looked at it entirely different than what it was really supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. But it was about a man making the decision to put his family before freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think when you guys, what you guys are doing and holding the black community accountable but giving them something in return for being accountable mm -hmm. saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what you should be doing, but I'm going to give you a platform so you can do right. it. I think it's awesome. And I just want to commend you guys for what you're doing. And one say, thank you for letting me be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I, I can tell you now I live the dream just being able to see what you guys do, but to be a part of it is amazing. And mm -hmm. I want to say, thank you. Well, well, I, I really appreciate you know, it. I believe do. Um, I appreciate it, but I believe we stand on you guys shoulders. Um, we stand on Jerome Battles, Dr. McGinnis, Bob Carson, Drag Carson, um, 
Raymond Arrington. Boona Patterson. Boona Patterson. We stand on those shoulders who we watched, we mimicked, and we learned from. And we felt like it was our duty and our time to say, you know what? Most because most people say, oh, you know, I'm too young to get involved with that. And most people say I'm too old to get involved with that. So when when is the right time? That's right. So we we had to to make a choice to say, we're gonna do it. Instead of saying, you know, because there are people on Facebook or whatever, you see them in the community, they say, oh, somebody should do this for this. You, you do it. it. You, you do, do it. it. Like Travis and, Thomas. And, he and, stepped and, up. And that's all we did right. was we we stopped saying somebody else should do it. And we said, you know we what? We'll do it. Um, there's a few names I want to go down um, of people in Bedford that I don't believe they understand what these people do. Um, because again, I just went through some names, Bob Carson, Raymond Arrington. Most people in Bedford know those names because they've done great work. Um, but again, we talk about Travis Thomas, uh, coach JV girls at Liberty high school, coach B team before that. Um, he does basketball training now at the YMCA and he has an AAU program that he created called Hoya elite that has different age groups for boys and girls that travel every weekend to play sports. And he's implemented um, so many kids from our community to give them an opportunity to not have to go to Lynchburg or Roanoke to be on the team, but right here in Bedford. And he's not even from Bedford, you know, and, and that's, that's what he gave back to our community. Uh, Daryl Robinson. Daryl Robinson played at Virginia Tech, transferred to LU, and he coached at EC Glass, and now he coaches at William Fleming. Gerald Larry's nephew. Now, just think about EC Glass and William Fleming. Most people will run the hell away from coaching those African-American kids because we know the community that they come from. But for Daryl Robinson to do it and do it effectively as a coach or as a teacher, as a mentor, um, means a lot, um, especially coming from the Bedford community. Uh, Absolutely. Kurt Churbin coaches in Charlottesville High School. Barry Flood coaches Team Impact. Um, a girls AAU basketball team. Chris Ridgeway coaches now the four three four Lady Heat, uh, a female AAU program. Sherrod Butler coaches the Lady Storm, a female AAU program. Let's go to Lynchburg. Frisco, um, who was one of the best players to come out of Heritage, uh, runs the Jubilee Center in Lynchburg. This is stuff that I'm seeing on Facebook. I don't know Frisco personally, but I see the work that he does on on Facebook, and I, I'm shouting it out where he mentors the youth and has a youth basketball program. Gigi um, works for the Lynchburg Police Department, uh, PUSH, uh, uh, in which she trains players in basketball, and all. they also have their own AAU program. Gerard Thomas, TIS training. He trains in basketball at all ages. I, sometimes I see him with little five-year-olds out there dribbling the <laughs> basketball. Great work. Kadeem Austin, who I know from changing his life personally, and I remember him telling me years ago, hey, look, I want to start doing stuff for the kids. And that's exactly what he did. He created the uh, the the Lynchburg Wolfpack, which is a travel football program. And I see him in Maryland playing teams. Uh, shout out to Kadeem Austin. Uh, Alvin McCauley, I, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, but he coaches, also coaches the Lady Storm as well, the AAU program. Jonathan Smith, my brother out of Appomattox, and he does work in Lynchburg as well. Motivational speaker, content creator, who helped me get the audio right. Shout out to my brother. Um, does great work. Uh, Jordan Bale, Roanoke, Virginia. Historian, activist, teacher, who does the also the Gainsborough work. Um, Andre Kendrick, we know him at Virginia Tech, but what he came back to do in Lynchburg, monumental. So shout out to all of those brothers um, 
being positive role, role models for our African-American community to look up. Some people may see you as coaches. We don't see you like that. We see you as making an impact. That's right. Just to yeah. piggyback off first what Dad said earlier about us, um, you know, Bake's favorite word is chronological. You know, none of this would be possible for us if it wasn't for you. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you didn't, because if you didn't get out of prison with the mind frame that you was going to change, then no way will we be able to change this community. So it started with you, first and foremost. And then secondly, with Bake, um, you know, it's been times where I've been at work and delivering and a guy come up to me and be like, yo, you Stevens' brother? I'd be like, yeah. He'd be like, yo, man, he really helped me while I was in jail. So even when Bake's not in the community, at work, he's helping other communities. That's right. By bettering people while they're incarcerated. That's right. He's not treating them like animals. He's treating them like humans that made mistakes. And you can be better once you get out of here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's a few more names I want to run down um, because there's just some people I just don't want to leave out. Um, Kim Jones, head coach, Stan River Girls Basketball, does great work. Um, Gaynell Creasy, you think about what she did in starting her beauty shop here right. in Bedford County, entrepreneurship that we talked about. Um, she gave Cheney Preston a spot in her, in her shop at one time. So you talk about the opportunities that she's been able to give um monumental um shout out to jonesy with the soul food uh, uh business you know you talk about some people just talk about doing things but being able to bring that into your community is huge um mo jones for me um every time i see mo jones it's nothing but love and energy you know you talk about well hoops kids he was doing something similar in alta, alta vista, vista. so right. you you talk about somebody who's influential with kids uh, Mo Jones for me, because whenever I see Mo Jones, it's just that positive energy. Again, you don't have to do a whole lot to have an impact in your community. You can just give people conversation, give people um, support and give them that love energy that we need uh, as a community. And Mo Jones and Crystal Miller are two people on my list that that just give that support and love uh, whenever it's needed. Um, my it's brother. It's funny that you say that because those two people you say that about is T's family. So <laughs> it's all one. <laughs> uh, my brother, Derek Robinson, Teron Robinson. Uh, of course, Teron with Boys With A Dream, what he was able to impact the community with and still does. Um, you talk about monumental. Derek Robinson, what he's doing on social network with the video game, bringing motivation through playing video games and entertainment. Um, he actually takes money that people give to him on that system and give back to the community. Thank you, D-Rod, for all that you do. Um, Ebony Foster, I believe she's uh, at Dunbar um, Middle School, I believe it is, but she does a lot of work with the 21st Century Program and helping kids get ready for the uh, SOL testing. Um, but when I spoke there and the way that she communicated with those kids um, helped me communicate better with African-American kids. Um, and I got to bring this last one up, Salem High School. Um, that's one of my favorite places to speak because they have an African-American history culture club. And the things that they are doing in that club is monumental. You know, I watch them do their black history ceremony. I watch them do um, do their own fraternity steps. I watch them um, 
talk about recite poetry in black history. Um, they talk about going to different HBCU schools to, to show the kids different opportunities. Um, they meet on a regular basis. It's just not like when clubs is, but just being in that environment where African Americans are building each other up and we see it in Salem High School. Um, I believe it needs to be in every high school to where we have one of those type of clubs and cultures to where we understand true black history and not just the ones that that's fed to us on on, on a yearly basis. So those are some people I wanted to, to name. Absolutely. Um, thank Absolutely. everybody for tuning in again. If you're tuning into this episode, you don't have to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to be start a nonprofit. You don't have to be perfect. All you have to do is give your love, your support, and invest into your community. Give them your experience, your knowledge. It doesn't have to be to a group. You can just go to the park and talk to one kid. You can see, a, uh, see one of your girlfriends or your homies with their kid. Have a conversation with them. You know, my dad's friends had conversations with us. I have the utmost respect for my dad's friends because we called them uncle, even though they weren't our uncle, because they gave us the their responsibility to teach us, even if our dad wasn't present. That's right. So when you talk about having a positive black male role model, some of it just starts with your friends. That's right. To their kids, having a, a, a relationship with their kids. And being able to have that impact show up for him. You know, I watched T's family show up to his games. It's more than just the dad that has to be, the mom has to be there. And when your whole family can be there for you, that, that's a change in, in, in community culture because a lot of us in Bedford are related. So in, in some kind of way. Some kind of way. So we have to begin to take care of our community and take care of each other and build each other up locally. Doesn't have to be on a national level. You don't, we don't need to be praised. We don't need Nobel Peace Prizes. We just need to have respect for one another. That's, That's, all. Right. That's all right. Thanks, everybody. We love y'all. Peace. Good up.